Uh, my name's Lloyd Shadrach. I'm one of the teaching pastors here along with Rob Sweet, and uh, you know, we rotate between Franklin and our Brentwood congregations. It's a team teaching model, if you're a guest. Uh, just to, I, I didn't plan this, but just to say, number one, the book Riser uh, by uh, Greg Joyner, our uh, uh, pastor of FSM, Fellowship Student Ministries in Brentwood, I read the manuscript, you know, before he had it printed, and I told my wife, I came home and said, this is really good uh, for relationships. I mean, it's just a path of communication that is so helpful, and he uses R-I-S-E-R to do that. So I just want to add, um, if you want you want some skills around communicating, not just with teenagers, but among ourselves, fantastic. And secondly, I cannot vouch for the safety of that paddle deal, okay? I'm not going to do that. But I will vouch for the character and the heart and the maturity of Bobby Brown as he leads our students. And uh, we are gifted and grateful to have someone who, you know, Bobby's been a pastor, a full-time pastor at a small church plant, and he's led in many contexts and places. And for him to choose to give his heart to our kids is a is a gift to us as a community of faith. So I hope, uh, I hope all you students and parents will jump in to those things. We continue our study through the book of Acts. Plan A, this is the church, is God's plan A for the world. And uh, we're coming to a passage that one commentator said, this is one of the three game-changer moments in the book of Acts. And uh, I'm going to talk about why it's a game changer in a moment. If you have your Bibles, let's open them to Acts 11, chapter, chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Now, I'm down here on the floor. We've moved everything out because there is a meal coming later today here that we needed to move our stuff off the stage for. Uh, obviously, the stanchions, what do stanchions mean when they're in front of something? What does that tell us? <laughs> Stay out. Yeah, so uh, keep away, okay, from this beautiful setting. Um, it's not for you. That's what they say. And it makes me think about uh, as a child, you remember going to, you know, a, a, a theme park or something and you want to ride this ride. You can't wait to ride the ride. And your older brother and sister can ride the ride and your parents can ride the ride. And then you come up to it and there's this, what, there's this person with a ruler or an animal with a fake ruler and it's this high and you're this high. You remember that? And what do you, what do you feel? What do you feel when you go up? What what's, goes on in your heart? Disappointment. I, I I can't, you know, maybe uh, even hurt. Maybe you've been to a concert or, you know, an event and the stanchions are there on the best seats, kind of walk by to go to the rafters, you know, and those seats are, are reserved. On a, on, a, on a far more serious note, if I can say this, you know, we only have to go back maybe 60 years in our own history as a people to remember, some of you do remember, I, I, I don't just barely in terms of my own age, but when there were stanchions in front of water coolers or swimming pools or movie theaters or restaurants, if you're African American, you're not welcome there. I can't imagine what that uh, felt like. I, it's one thing to not get on a ride because you're not tall enough, you know, and trusting you'll be tall enough soon enough, and it's another thing to not get a seat somewhere that's really super sweet, but you know what, you chose not to, but to be denied access to anything that's intended for all um, uh, because of the color of your skin or your nationality, uh, this, is, uh, this is beyond description and beyond hurt. Um, the church did not nor does it today come out spotless. 
when it comes to prejudice, when it comes to discrimination. Uh, John Stott writes this, and I'll quote, The same ugly sin of discrimination has kept reappearing in the church in the form of racism, nationalism, tribalism, casteism in, in India, social and cultural snobbery, or even sexism. All such discrimination is inexcusable, even in non-Christian society, right? We go, that's, that's unacceptable. Then he says this, in the Christian community, it is both an obscenity because it is offensive to human dignity and it is a blasphemy because it is offensive to God who accepts all without discrimination, all who repent and believe, end quote. And notice Stott says it keeps reappearing in church history. Why does he say it keeps reappearing? Because it was there in the very beginning. <laughs> it was there. And we see that today. Now, lest we think that we're beyond it, I want you to think for a moment with me. I'm not going to ask anybody. I'm not going to ask anybody to um, share their answer. Uh, but I am going to ask you to just be brutally honest in your heart. I'm going to ask you to fall in love with reality, the reality of our own hearts. And I want you to think for a moment in your mind's eye, is there someone or a, a group, a, a people or persons that when you're honest, you would rather they not be in heaven, but that they actually receive the wrath of a holy God because of what they've done, what they're doing. I just want you to think, are there any, is there anyone, any group or person or people that fit that for you? You go, no, that's, that's un- they have gone beyond I'll tell you this, and I won't name things, but I do when I just sit there and go, uh, when I think a certain, pick up the paper and read or watch it. I, I do. And maybe you do. I'll say this. We're not in bad company, only in this sense. The apostles, when they first understood the goodness of the gospel and the salvation, a gift of grace of the Father, do you know, they actually had deep trouble believing that this gift was for everyone, for all, and for any who would simply come and put their faith in Christ alone. You know, they struggled with this, and it didn't, it didn't go away overnight. And we'll see here in our text today how great the struggle is. And then in the coming weeks, we're going to look at, in fact, next week, we'll look at the Jerusalem Council, chapter 15. Y'all, this issue was so deep that, that the Jerusalem Council, when the apostles came together, that, that they had to decide, will there be a, a Gentile church and a, and a Jewish church? Or does the gospel, the gospel make us one? And this is a massive, massive issue that they will settle at the Jerusalem Council. Acts chapter 10, I know you're in chapter 11, but I'm going to walk you through. You don't, I don't want to read it. We're not going to turn there. I'm going to describe it. 
Because this sets up chapter 11. Acts chapter 10 is the conversion of a man and his family and his household, and his name was Cornelius. Cornelius was a Roman centurion. He was a military officer of Rome. He was a Gentile. And uh, the, the story is about him coming to faith in Christ, and that's why this is one of the game changers in the book. I'm telling you, the church, uh, the church avoided a giant uh, pitfall, if you will, through this man's conversion and what it represented and how it steered the church toward the gospel and the true gospel that's for everyone. I'll tell you, the wall did not come down easily, though. Chapter 10, let me just walk you through this, and then we're going to get to 11. Chapter 10, if you, you can read it later, begins with the story of Cornelius praying. So this is how the story, the story begins with this man praying. He's a God-fearer. He is not a Christ follower. He's a Gentile man who fears God. There were, there were many in the, in, at that time, but they didn't, they weren't Jewish and they weren't proselytes. They hadn't come to, they hadn't made themselves Jewish, which some people could do. Uh, he was a Roman Gentile, but he's, he, he fears God and he prays. And while he's praying, <clears throat> he sees a vision. And there is an angel that comes before him and says to him, Cornelius, God has heard your prayers. And I want you to send <coughs> some of your men uh, south, 31 miles to Joppa. So here's the Mediterranean Sea, and along the coast is uh, Caesarea, where he is. And Joppa's 31 miles south, right on the coast, okay? Send uh, to, uh, to Joppa, and there's a man there, and I'm going to tell you exactly where to go. He's staying at a, at, at a house of a tanner, a leather tanner, and his name is Simon. But you're going to ask for this man named Peter, and tell him to come with you. Okay, so, so he prays this prayer, and he sees the vision, and he goes, okay. He calls his men, go to Joppa. Now, the story goes like this. While the men were traveling to Joppa, 31 miles on, on foot, take some time, while they were on their way, the story goes to Joppa. And guess what? There's another man praying. His name's Peter, the apostle. And Peter's up on the roof praying, you know, up on this flat roof. And he's, he, he goes up to pray. And I, I think this is so interesting. And it says he's hungry. So, so you know how, you ever notice, you ever go to pray and you're, you know, I'm going to go pray. Especially, go, well, wait a minute, I'm hungry. Well, he gets up on this roof. He's hungry. And in his prayer, it says he goes into a trance and he sees this vision of a sheet falling from the sky, coming down on the four corners, being held by something. And it comes down and when it gets low enough to him, he looks within the sheet and there are all these animals in the sheet, four-footed creatures and birds of the air. And they're animals that a Jew was not permitted to eat. In other words, they, they, they had, these were unclean animals. And it's no accident, this thing falls down, Peter looks at it, and he sees all this, at one level, he sees all this food, (laughs) and he's hungry. And the voice comes from heaven and says, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. (laughs) In other words, here's your meal. And Peter says, no, Lord, no, I've never had unclean food touch my lips. And it happens three times. What is it about three times with Peter? It always three, three, you know, three times it happens. And it says Peter, when he, the third time it ended, he, he, it was over. He gets up and he goes down. Now, watch the story. This guy was praying. He sends the guys. Peter's praying. He sees the thing. As soon as he walks downstairs, 
It's three guys from Caesarea who look at Peter and say, uh, uh, you know, our master was praying and, and God told him to send for you and for you to come with him to Caesarea. And then we read the story and you'll see the conversion of Cornelius coming to faith. Now, I say all that to say that was the third person account of the events. Now we're in chapter 11. We chose to go here, excuse me, because we are going to now read Peter's explanation of the events. So it's not like we're going to read this and go, what does this mean? Because Peter interprets the whole story for us. So this is one of those great passages where we're not going to be going, I'm not sure what this means. Some say it means this. No, no, no. Peter's going to say, let me tell you what this means. And I will say to us, while what it means won't be difficult, we're going to be challenged to go, well, now what does it mean to me? Because it's always about the application, not just what the text means, but how do we live it? And we're going to apply that as we end uh, our time together. Okay, you're at Acts chapter 11. We're going to take verses 1 through 18. You know what the story is now. Uh, there are three parts to it. There's an accusation, there's an explanation, and there's a transformation. There's an accusation, verses 1 to 3. There's an explanation. That's 4 all the way down through 17. And then, and then this one verse says, let me, let me, talk about the tr- let me sh- tell you about the transformation that occurs. Follow along in your Bibles, Acts chapter 11 Beginning in verse 1. Now, the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Now, please mark this. When it says they had received the word of God, it means they heard that Gentiles had put their faith in the good news. It's not like, oh, okay, we'll, we'll take the Bible now. No, it means they, they heard that Gentiles now had placed their faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And when Peter came up geographically, you always go up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, Peter's coming off, wouldn't you say, a pretty amazing time, visions, Gentiles coming to faith. He's going to Jerusalem to tell them what happened, and when he knocks on the door, opens it and goes in, it's not like, this is amazing, the Gentiles believe. I mean, he walks into a machine gun. You know, they couldn't believe, I can't believe. You would would go to uncircumcised men. Who, Who are these circumcised men. Well, some say they're a, a, a smaller sect of Jews within the church. Others would say they're, they're Jewish Christians because the Jews were circumcised and, and they're Jewish. And, I, and I, tend, I, I tend to lean that way. This is the, this, these are the other apostles. These are the Jewish Christians in, in Jerusalem. And they say to Peter, I can't believe you've done this. Now, I want you to understand the issue uh, it, it, it's a subset issue, you know, that he ate with them. But, but the core issue, and I want to cut to this rather quickly because we see it in the back end of the passage, is that they're upset that the, the Gentiles, they have heard that these Gentiles have, have, brought, have come to faith in Christ and Peter verified that he, he believed they, they have come to faith in Christ and they're full members because he ate with them, you see. So he, 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 he had a meal with them to say, you're, you're in, just like me, so to speak. 
Now, we know that because when you get to verse 18, just look there quickly, they come to their conclusion and say, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So they're going, oh, now that we understand all this, so God has saved the Gentiles. And he saved them just as they are. We know as well in the New Testament that this issue of a Gentile um, having to do something else before, before coming to faith is a, is a major, major issue. Now, from the accusation, I want to do the explanation. This is verses 4 to 17. Let's keep going. It says, But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings, These six brethren also went with me. Notice he has six with him that go to to witness what happens. These also went with me, and we entered the man's home. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that. They've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? I, I, I love the way he just explained it. You know, he didn't, it doesn't sound like he got defensive. He didn't fire up like I would. And he just said, let me tell you what happened. And you'll see that God... By his actions. Do you notice who's the initiator of all this activity? It's God moving his plan forward. It's not Peter and it's not even Cornelius. I mean, they're praying, but God sets in motion these things. And and, and clearly by God's actions, what God does, God gives them the spirit. He's saying, you know, a Gentile need do nothing, nothing, but put their faith in Christ just like any person, any race, any nationality. Yes, a Gentile, Jews, whom you despise, 
See, the Jews called Gentiles dogs. They really did. And it was like normal because they treated them like dogs. They were Roman. They, they, they were occupying our country. They, they were to the Jews like, a, a, this is a rough analogy, but they were like the, 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 the Nazis were to the French or Europeans. I mean, do you really want to, do you really care about these people who've, who've killed millions and, you know what I'm saying? That's how they, that's how they were treated. And God says, no, they, they come to faith just like you do. Now, the reason this was so difficult to, for, for Peter to grasp and the apostles, like, that the, that a Gentile, number one, could, could come to faith, but as a Gentile, there's nothing, you don't discriminate in any way against a Gentile that they come to faith just like a Jew does. The reason it was so hard for them to believe that was because they, Peter and the apostles, were still keeping the dietary laws. They, they were, you know, we, we, we know that they were still trying, try, they were still holding on to the rope of religion, quite frankly, and it took a while to let go. They were still holding on to, 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 to keeping these dietary laws and not eating unclean things, i.e. that faith in Christ and I'm not going to eat certain foods. See, that they were still holding on to that, and we know that that's, it's, God's going to wean them from that. But wasn't it good? I mean, why did God tell them not to eat that food in the first place? What, what, why would he do that? And this is where, you all, we need to understand the gospel in redemptive history and how the gospel was slowly revealed over time. And then we can see, well, what does is, what is eating, not eating food have to do with anything? Well, it has this to do with it. Let me walk you through it. You know, redemptive history tells us that we were made, all people were made to be in a relationship with God. We know in the Garden of Eden, we, we, we broke that relationship by sin. We chose, you know, Adam and Eve chose the fruit and the relationship is broken. And God promises and says, I'm going to make a way back to relationship with me because that is the purpose of every human being, to be in relationship with God. And so God says, I'm going to make a way back. And, and God, through time, thousands of years, y'all, God says, I'm going, to, I'm going to choose a man, Abraham, and I'm going to make a nation through this man. And so, so God says, I'm, through this nation, and this nation will be called Israel, the Messiah, the Savior, is going to come through this nation. Now, God chose Israel. Why did he choose Israel? Because they were better than everybody? Because they were smarter? No, they, they, they themselves, they cho- God chose them because he chose them. But God chose them and said, now I'm going to work redemption through this nation so that the Messiah will come from this nation, but this nation is going to live different than all other nations because I want the world to see what it looks like to live in a relationship with a holy God, thus the sacrifices, thus the penalty of death for sin, thus the blood that shed to cover over the sin, thus they were set apart to be Holy. See, that you're going to be a holy people. Now, when you think holy, we know they weren't sinless, but holy means to be set apart, to be distinct from. And so the, the, this, this nation was a, was a model, was a picture for the whole world to see, here's what it means to be in relationship with a holy God, and therefore, you're, you know, I'm going to have you not eat certain foods. I'm going to have you, you're going to do sacrifices. You're going to be a distinct people, which by the way, think about us as Christians today. What does God call us to be? A distinct people unto God in the world, but not of the world. And so in the fullness of time, Galatians says, 
Jesus, the Messiah, came. Now, he came. Jesus is Jewish, you all. He came through the nation of Israel. But when Jesus came, we know the fullness of God dwelt in him, and Jesus satisfied and fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law. He fulfilled it. It's been completed in him. He lived a sinless life. He never broke a law. But having come now, the law fulfilled in the God-man Jesus, you all, the law is no longer necessary. This is what the whole New Testament's about. Now, the principles of the law remain, but the law itself is no longer necessary. Is everybody with me on this, okay? But, but Peter and the apostles were still hanging on to, well, there's unclean food. I'm not going to eat it. And, you know, he gets called out on this. This might help us. You know, around Nashville, a year, maybe two years ago, we were, uh, me and my kids were downtown and we were on top of a building there. And I said, you know, you can tell how, how well a city's doing by how many cranes are in it. And, you know, you get down to Nashville and you look around, start counting. You know, and you, you, run, you, know, you stop counting. It's like, oh, my gosh. Well, I want you to think about this. When, when, when a developer uh, builds a building, gorgeous building, they throw a crane in there. Sometimes the crane's right in the middle of the building. And then as the building's going up, they've got to use the crane to build the building, and they've got to use scaffolding, right, to put up on the outside of the building to be able to do the stuff they need to do on the outside of the building. Now, all this stuff covers the building, you know, the crane's up there. Can you imagine... Uh, doing all that, building the building, and now you've got this gorgeous 18-story hotel, the JW Marriott Weston down there, just being done, but you leave the crane up and you leave the scaffolding up. What, what would we think of that? We'd go, what? Like, y'all, the, the scaffolding was intended to, to help Build the building. You see, all this scaffolding is about the building, not the scaffolding. Y'all, when Jesus came, he's the building. He's the perfect building. He's the God-man. And therefore, when he came, take down the crane. Take down the scaffolding. You don't need that anymore. It was good. You see, you don't ever say the law is evil. No, the law is pure and right and good. But it is no longer necessary. It's faith in Christ and in Christ alone, period. He's fulfilled the law. It's all about Jesus. Salvation is to the Jew first. That's very clear in the New Testament because salvation comes through the Jew. But it was never, ever for the Jew only. That's where they, that's where they tripped. It's appropriate that it's to the Jew first, absolutely. But it was never for the Jew only. Y'all, it's for all, any, and every person on the planet including the people I think about in my mind that I go, I just want the wrath of God to fall on them. Or I don't want them in. Or I don't like this person. You see what I'm saying? Okay, 
accusation, explanation, real quick, transformation, verse 18, when they heard this, okay, they hear the whole thing, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Do you notice it doesn't say, well, great, the Gentiles have done what they need to do in order to come to faith in Christ. No, it's just... So God is granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to faith. Well, what's the repentance that leads to faith? It's, it's the gift of salvation. It's the gift that, that repentance enables us to turn from where we're going away from God to turn to God and fall, at his, fall on our knees and say, God, you are God and you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. He was buried and rose again. You see, that's the gift of repentance. I could call it the gift of belief. Understand that salvation, you putting your trust and faith in Christ, me doing that is a gift. It's a gift. It was never, look, it's not that you're smarter than other people. It's not that you're better. It's not that you had fewer sins. It's not that you're black. It's not that you're white. It's not that you're yellow. It's not that you're Jewish. It's It's just a gift. And if you believe, you've got to understand the belief itself is God's gift to you. And that gift enables you to go, I am a sinner and I turn from that and I turn to God and I believe. All is of God, you see. Now, does it require us to choose? Yes. But we couldn't even choose. Did, were God not at work in our heart to open our eyes? And so if you're here today and you're going, I, well, this is starting to make sense to me. I go, because God's at work in you. Will you believe? And will you trust the gift? Let me offer two lessons and then we're going to apply this. The first one is this. Persecution will not stop the progress of the gospel, but prejudice will every time. You notice in in Acts that every time they get persecuted, what happens to the gospel? What happens to the church every time it gets persecuted in the book of Acts? Tell me. It grows. But I'll tell you something. Introduce any level of prejudice within the community of faith and it shrivels. Any level of discrimination, prejudice, bias, shrivels. Uh, we are foolish, I believe. I would be foolish to think there was no prejudice in my heart, which is why I had you imagine that person or people a moment ago. So let me offer you something. You know, we change by the power of the Spirit. So by the power of the Spirit, let me invite you this week uh, to imagine something. You know, a lot of, you know, God gives us an imagination to use it. Let's use it. I want you to imagine this week every person you meet. I'm talking about when you walk out these doors, when you're at home, you're at work, you're at school, you're wherever you are, but every person you meet, every person you interact with, just imagine that they are wearing a lanyard like, like the volunteers do here at church. We wear lanyards so that people know we can help you or volunteer. But imagine they're wearing a lanyard and in big, bold letters, the lanyard simply said, Jesus died for me. It just says, Jesus died for me. For me. 
So when you are talking to someone and they're rude to you and you're ready to go, you're ready to come back on them like, like I would, you just stop and you look at their lanyard and you go, hmm. Even, even you know, the AT&T or Comcast rep, you're trying to get your thing. <laughs> I always do that and I shouldn't. They're, you know, I'm, but uh, I still don't have cell service in my neighborhood. You know, I'm not in Timbuktu. Um, and so, but, you, but you, they have this thing on it that says, Jesus died for me. I, I really mean this. How, how would we interact with people? Uh, honestly, even people that hurt us. Even people that are mean. I, you know, it's not, you don't want to be treated ill and it's not appropriate to be, a, be abused or harmed. But, but there's, there, I just want you to know there's no one you're going to meet ever till the day you die. You're not going to meet anyone that's not wearing the lanyard. Okay, the second thing would be this. Salvation that comes to us is meant to go through us. This is a big deal. The salvation that comes to us is meant to go through us. You all, let's not make the mistake Israel did. And they did make the mistake. That they thought the salvation that came through them was only for them. And the salvation that came to them was for the world. It was for me and you, Gentiles. I mean, most of us in the room, Gentiles, I I believe, and sometimes, you know, sometimes our, our faith, if I could say this, sometimes I know when there are seasons when my faith gets kind of, this is, almost sounds blasphemous to say, but gets kind of stale or boring. You're just kind of going through the motions, but there's not a vibrancy to your faith. And we forget, you know, just when the business of life, the cost that Christ paid and the life that we live in him. And I want to suggest this. I think sometimes, not always, but sometimes what can, you can trace that back. It could be that the salvation that was given to you, you're not giving it to others. And I'm going to tell you, that'll, that'll kind of sour your faith. It, it, you see, that the gift of salvation is best experienced. See, this is not about no, just known in my head, but I'm talking about experienced in my life and body as I give it to others. That's how I experience even more the fullness of the salvation itself. If you don't get anything else today, I hope you will take this one sentence home with you because it's at the heart of who we are as a community of faith and it's the heart of our, our faith and salvation. You have been saved for someone else. You have been saved for someone else. You you have been saved for someone else. You say, well, you know, salvation's mine, it's personal. Yeah, it's yours, but you understand God saved you for someone else. Why why else would you stay on the planet? Unless God had something for you to do, and I'll tell you, according to the Bible, what he has for us to do is to tell someone else how they can have a relationship with God. Your salvation is for someone else, and I want you to mark this. It's for someone you know that I don't know. It's for someone at your office or your home or your neighborhood 
uh, not mine. See, I got my own neighborhood. I got my own people that are in. You understand what I'm saying? This is how it works. This is the gospel. This is how the good news goes. It goes through people who receive a salvation and choose to see that everyone they come in contact with is someone for whom I've been saved for them to help them come to know the Savior. You've been saved for someone else. I want you to close your Bibles. I want you to pick up your notebooks and pens or drinks because we're getting ready to do something that will end our service and you'll need to have these things with you. I'm going to invite the band to come back out as we respond and as we apply this text. Um, gather your stuff together. I will. L- let me say this. <sighs> You know, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to the good news that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again, and that all who put their trust in Christ are forgiven their sins, clothed with his righteousness, in a relationship with God forever. Understand, that, that good news is often described as a meal, and there are no stanchions around it. Do we understand there, 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 there are no off-limit signs that the table is wide open. So this amazing meal up here, y'all, you know, we said it was from an L. We said it was for later. I wasn't lying totally because we are going to come up here and it's later than when I said it. Um, the meal's for us. It's not, um, hey, you need to clean up your act. Uh, I don't know, you know, you, you've done too much. You can't, no, no, there's, there's, no. It's for any, every, and all who just like they are, not like I got to clean up first, I got to do something, I got to stop sinning first, then I'll come. No, that's not the way the gospel works, you see. The gospel has come just like you are sin and selfishness and the darkness of our heart, we bring it to, to God, we bring it to Christ and we fall down, we go, this is, this is me. Yeah, I choose these things. And God, you've given me the eyes to see and the heart to believe that Jesus died for all this stuff I do and keep doing. He pays the penalty for me completely, even when I keep doing it. And I trust that he did it for me. And Jesus invites us to a table, the Lord's table. This is what we're going to do today. We're going to come to the Lord's table. And he says, when you take the bread, it's a reminder that my body was broken for you. And when you take this cup, you're reminded that my blood was shed. My life, life's in the blood. My life was poured out so that you would never have to give up your life, your soul separated from God forever. You never have to experience that because I'm going to experience it for you. He says of the Lord's table, when we take it, so when you take the bread and you take the cup, Jesus told Paul, you are remembering what I've done, okay? And you're actually proclaiming my death and you're proclaiming that I'm going to come again. So in the Lord's table, we look backwards and we look forward, you see.
Now, when you come, I want you to think about some things. The first thing would simply be this. Do you understand that the stanchion was there at a time? If you're a Gentile, it was there. You couldn't get in fully, so to speak. But because Christ is coming, there's no, there's no stanchions there. There's nothing to keep you away. And I want you to think about this. Uh, there's no one that you and I know, even people, honestly, I hate. I can say that because we all hate unrighteousness. We hate what people do. And there's people who do vile things in this world. We can be against that. But we also need to recognize that no one is beyond the forgiveness of the, the cross. And then the other thing I'd like you to think about is when you come to this table and you'll come up here to this table and there'll be a group of you gathered around, you'll see some things on these plates and you'll take the bread and the cup and you'll take it and you'll exit. But I want you to think about this, that as you come to the table, you may come with a spouse, a family. I want everyone who knows Christ personally to know there are other people in the world that God has left you on the planet in order that you can bring them to this table. It's true of every person who knows Christ. Who's not at the table with you right now that God may, God wants at the table and he's put you in their life to bring them. Think about that. Um, if you know Christ, please participate in the Lord's table. When you come up here, you'll find the bread and the cup and you'll take it. Um, it's welcome to all. If you're a guest and, and you know Christ, um, please participate in the table. If you don't know Christ here this morning, um, I'm still going to ask you to come up to the table, but the, the bread and the cup, you, you wouldn't take because you haven't believed in Christ, and that's okay. But can I tell you this? Between the moment you stand up and the moment you stand at this table, you can believe. Y'all, it's that, it is that simple. You, you can stand up, and in your heart, you, can, you, you may say, I, I believe today. I, I believe it. Jesus died for me. For me, he died. And I'm telling you, while you're walking up, if you believe, take the bread and the cup. And I would hope you'd tell someone too that you've believed. I want you to know you can believe today. This may be your day. Um, Everyone is gonna come to this table, okay? So so as I dismiss you to come to the table, I want you to know whatever category you're in, we're all coming up here and standing around it. And then we're going to exit. So is everybody with me on that? Everyone comes. You know, you can come and stand, observe. If you don't take the bread and the cup, that's okay. Just stand with, with the church family and then we'll exit. I'm going to walk down and I'm going to dismiss a group. And the group's going to come up. And then you need to go all around the table. You can put 20, 30 people around the table. Take the bread and the cup. And then you're going to exit. And you're going to, the whole group's going to just walk off. You're going to go down these stairs. You're going to go down that aisle. You're going to go along that wall. And you're going to go out those doors because you're leaving. Okay, that's why I had you pick up all your stuff. I'm going to move from that side to this side, which means you guys get church extra because it'll take a while for us to move through in this way. And I did this at Brentwood last week. And I will tell you this, if you're in the room for a little while, there's something so sweet and good and right about watching all of us as a family just go to the table, walk away, go to the table, walk away. Is everybody clear on the instructions? We're gonna have guys on stage to help you as you come up. Let me pray. Father, thank you for sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
to die on the cross for our sin. He was buried and raised again for he had no sin of his own. And when we trust him and him alone with all of our junk, with all of our dirtiness, sin, uh, we, we, we are forgiven. We're cleansed from all sin and unrighteousness where we're cleansed in him and his work, not our own. May we be mindful of our prejudice and discrimination, subtle ways we do that. And may we continually repent. Grant us courage to invite others to this table who you put in our life. We might speak the gospel to them. We give thanks, Lord, for your body broken and for your blood shed. We remember what you've done and that you're coming again in this table. In Christ's name, amen.